I'd like to have you uh, please open in your Bibles uh, to our text for this morning, which is Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. And you might hear my co-pastor, Levi Han, uh, chiming in every once in a while. Um, We're going to be uh, beginning a sermon series for the next uh, couple of weeks uh, throughout the rest of the season of Lent, looking at the book of Exodus. Um, In the same way that that the Israelites' captivity and slavery in the land of of Egypt and then God's leading them out uh, into a new life of of freedom, um, or the same way that God led them out of that, that slavery into a new life of freedom, it sort of parallels actually our slavery to sin and, uh, and the old self of our sinful nature and how Christ uh, in, on Easter Sunday leads us out of that into a new life of freedom as well. And so we're going to be sort of using the book of Exodus as a, a lens into the work of Christ uh, the rest of this, uh, this Lenten season as we anticipate Easter. And so we'll begin right at the beginning of the book of Exodus chapter 1 and we'll read uh, the whole chapter. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all of his brothers and all of that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in number, and became so numerous that the land was filled filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. We must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join with our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with harsh labor. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. And in all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Pua, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth, And observe them on the on the delivery stool. If the child is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt said to them. They let the boys live. So Pharaoh summoned the midwives and asked them, "Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live?" The midwives answered Pharaoh, "Hebrew women are different than Egyptian women." They're vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people continued to increase and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew baby boy that is born must be thrown into the Nile, but let every girl live. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, uh, the first sermon I ever preached was on Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And that's uh, Matthew's account of Satan's temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And it's, a, it's an interesting passage. Uh, 
It's an interesting passage for a number of different reasons. For starters, it's actually part of the reason why we celebrate this season of Lent each year. The 40 days of Lent are partially based on the Israelites' 40 years wandering around in the wilderness, just a couple books after uh, the one we're looking at in Exodus, but also based somewhat on on Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness in that passage in Matthew chapter 4. The idea behind Lent is that just as Jesus fasted uh, for 40 days in the wilderness, we too fast for 40 days during the season of Lent to commemorate that. It's also interesting how the first verse of that passage, Matthew 4, verse 1, says that it's actually the Spirit, as in the Holy Spirit, that leads Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted, which, of course, brings up a whole series of questions about how the different persons of the Trinity interact and relate to each other, uh, the answers to which I don't know, and so I'll refer you to Steve. Um, after his uh, recent fantastic sermon series, and it was fantastic, by the way, I'll be deferring all future Trinity-related questions to him. So. Uh, but what I actually found most interesting about that passage when I first sat down to study it and prepare a sermon on it all those years ago um, wasn't the fact that it was the Spirit who was the one who led Jesus out there into the wilderness Uh, It wasn't the duration or amount of time that he spent there. It wasn't how he miraculously survived without eating for 40 days. Instead, it was actually what it was that Satan uh, tried to tempt Jesus with. Uh, In case you haven't read that passage recently, Satan's first temptation to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 was simply uh, for him to turn some stones into bread and feed himself. When that didn't work, Satan moved on to his second temptation, and he took Jesus up on top of the temple in Jerusalem. And there, standing above the temple courts, Satan actually quotes some scripture from Psalm 91 about God taking care of his people. And then he tells Jesus to to throw himself down. In essence, what Satan is saying there is, put that scripture to the test. Let's see if the words of that psalm are really true. When that doesn't work either, though, in a last-ditch effort, Satan tries one more. He takes Jesus up to a mountaintop. He shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor, and he says, I'll give it all to you. All you have to do is bow down and worship me, and I'll make you Lord and King. Now, here's what's interesting about each of those temptations in Matthew chapter 4. None of them are inherently bad. The first one has to do with food, right? It's just about feeding himself. It's just about Jesus uh, making some food for himself. It's not a bad thing. Neither is the second thing that Satan tempts Jesus with, which is actually trusting scripture. Let's put the words of this psalm to the test. Even the last temptation, which is a little bit more tricky because Satan's trying to get Jesus to bow down to him, it's actually something that we all confess about Jesus. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world, Satan says. I'll make you Lord and King of all creation. Isn't that what we believe about Jesus? That he is Lord? That he is King of all creation? You see, contrary to what we might sometimes think, Satan doesn't always use obviously bad stuff to tempt us into sin and undermine our relationship with God. Sometimes he uses good things, too. The problem is that he uses those good things in such a way that they end up getting in the way of our relationship with God. They go from being gifts that God has given us to instead things that tempt us away from him. 
Ultimately, Satan turns those things into idols that we trust in and rely on more than God himself. Give it enough time and anything, anything, good or bad, can end up ensnaring, entrapping, and enslaving us as human beings. And that's something that we see right here in our passage this morning in Exodus 1. Uh, It's important to remember that the Israelites didn't actually end up in Egypt um, under bad circumstances. In case you don't know the story or you just need a little refresher, one of the Old Testament patriarchs, Jacob, had 12 sons. Uh, one of those, out of those 12, he had two favorites, Joseph and Benjamin. Joseph was the older of the two, and he had a knack for irritating his brothers, uh, who eventually did what anyone would do when you're frustrated with a sibling, and they sold him into slavery. <laughs> I'm, kids, don't sell your siblings into slavery. Anyway, uh, through a whole series of unfortunate events, Joseph ends up in prison in Egypt, but then through a whole series of rather fortunate events, he ends up second in command of Egypt. And a number of other things happen along the way. There's a famine. Uh, Joseph just about perfectly handles it so that Egypt is the only country with any food in the area. Eventually, that leads to his brothers traveling there to buy some of that food from him, which leads to a whole other series of events that ultimately end up with Joseph inviting his family to come and live with him there in the land of Egypt. And that's where this text picks things up this morning. Jacob moves with his sons and their families, 70 people in all, to go and live with Joseph. And so Egypt becomes their home. In fact, we know from elsewhere in Scripture that it actually becomes the Israelites' home for 400 years, and God blesses them there. Jacob's family becomes a people. What started out as just 70 members of an extended family over time becomes an entire nation, the Israelites. They build homes, they start businesses, they settle down and get comfortable. Generation after generation comes and goes and life is good. Egypt is a good place to live. Until suddenly it's not. In verse 8 the text says, Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Uh, That verse is a bit like how TV shows foreshadow a conflict that's about to come. Um, You ever notice that? Crime dramas especially will do this a lot. They start out all happy. There's this nice opening scene maybe of a loving family or a few friends. Everything seems great. It sort of lulls you into thinking, this is going to be a great show. But then all of a sudden in the background, you see something just, just, you know, outside the frame, the initial frame that sort of makes your heart skip a beat, right? Maybe it's sort of a dark figure in a mask, or you see a gloved hand sort of reaching up for the window latch, something like that. And it tells you that everything is about to go wrong. That's verse 8. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Python and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. Again, like I said, 
Give it enough time, and anything can end up enslaving us. At least for a while, Egypt was a good place for the Israelites. They were fruitful and multiplied there. God blessed them, and they increased in number. Living as God's people in Egypt wasn't so bad until Pharaoh decided otherwise. And that actually gets us to the heart of the conflict uh, that we see here in this passage. You see, there's a certain word that pops up over and over again in this book, in the book of Exodus. It's a Hebrew word, abad, which means to serve. It's actually used 97 times throughout the book of Exodus. And the author uses it five times alone in the last two verses that we just read, in verses 13 and 14. The NIV actually translates it a little differently each time, so you sort of lose the oomph uh, that you would have in the original Hebrew. But translated literally, this is what those verses say. Talking about the Egyptians' treatment of the Israelites, the author of Exodus writes, They made them serve ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh service in brick and mortar, with all kinds of service in the fields. In all their harsh service, the Egyptians made them serve ruthlessly. Now, there are a lot of S's in those verses. That's that's the whole reason why you needed to hire a new senior pastor, just to get through reading things like that, (laughs) right? What's interesting about that, though, is that that's actually the same Hebrew word, abad, that the Bible uses to talk about serving God. You know that famous verse in Joshua 24, the one that a lot of people put up sort of on the walls in their house, right? Years later in this story, after the Israelites have made it to the promised land, one of their leaders, Joshua, stands before them and says, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. And then you probably know the rest of the verse, right? But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's the same word, abad. The word for serve there is the same word that's used here in Exodus. The word Exodus uses to talk about the Israelites serving Pharaoh is also the word that the Bible uses to talk about serving God. Commentator Terence Fretheim writes about that in his treatment of this passage, and he says that one of the fundamental questions of the book of Exodus is whom will Israel serve? Will they serve Pharaoh or will they serve God? Who or what is going to be Lord of their lives? A couple millennia later, the fact of the matter is that that's actually still the exact same question that we have to answer today. You see, this passage introduces the conflict that is going to run all throughout the rest of this book. As we'll see in this series, God desires to bless his people. Pharaoh seeks to oppress them. Both demand their service, so who will they end up serving? But that's not just the conflict of this book. That's actually the conflict of our lives as well. It's our question, too. Who will we serve? God or someone else? God or something else? You see, like I said at the beginning, Satan can use any number of things, both good and bad, to tempt us away from right relationship with God. Give it enough time and anything can end up taking God's place in our lives. Anything can become an idol. Anything can enslave us. Chuck DeGroat writes about that in his book, Leaving Egypt. He opens the whole book with a provocative question. Are we not slaves? He asks. And then he goes on. 
All of us, to be sure, sometimes feel trapped in circumstances and situations that seem to exist beyond our control. But often we are slaves to ourselves, trapped in patterns of thinking and feeling that stifle our freedom. Are we not slaves? The Exodus story would answer, yes, we are all slaves. We're slaves to image and appearance, to substances and relationships, to compulsive behaviors and abusive systems. We're all ensnared by the Egypts of our lives and the pharaohs that demand our allegiance. As free as we might imagine ourselves, each of us continues to wrestle with the old self, as the apostle called it. Parts of us that have never left the slavery of Egypt for the flourishing we're made for. Are we not slaves? This question may also have been difficult to answer for the Israelites living in Egypt those many years after the famine brought them there in the first place. For years, the Israelites found safety, security, and refuge in Egypt. Life in Egypt began with great hope and possibility. Many might have said, we're not slaves at all. God has given us a good life here. Such is the case with slavery. It's hard to leave Egypt. It was hard then. And it's hard now. And if that sounds a a bit over the top, let's just think about that for a second. Because the fact of the matter is that we all have things like that, right? DeGroote gives some good examples. Some of us, for instance, are slaves to our image, our appearance, maybe our reputation. Others of us may be trapped in various relationships, behaviors, habits, or patterns of doing things. We might be addicted to different substances, or we might have been in the past. And then there are others, too. There are the obvious ones in our modern society, right? Like technology, social media, or work. Those are all things that we can go overboard on. What about food, exercise, or hobbies? We can blur the lines between using those things in healthy and unhealthy ways. Money, possessions, stability and security, political allegiance and party and candidate loyalty, you name it, and there are countless things in our lives that can spin out of control into the kind of idolatry and slavery that makes it hard for us to continue to serve God. And then there are the less obvious ones too, right? The good things that seem like they could never be anything other than good. Things like family, success, comfort, or helping others. I'll give you a personal one. For me, it's reading. I once heard Tim Keller, pastor and author in New York City, talk about this a few years ago, and I thought, yeah, that sounds familiar. Keller talked about how he loves reading. He owns countless books. He's always buying new ones, and then after he reads them, he proudly displays them on his bookshelves for everyone to see. But what Keller said he realized at one point was that he didn't just love reading. He also loved being known for how much reading he did. He loved that people saw him as someone who was well-read, and it became a source of pride for him. And he said that ever since he realized that, he's actually had to make sure that he keeps that in its proper place. Strange as it might sound, Keller said that he had to work to make sure that reading and being known as someone who was well-read didn't end up taking the place of God in his life. Isn't that like the most pastor temptation you've ever heard of? (laughs) And yet, like I said, when I heard that story... I thought, yeah, that's, that's me too. I own more books than I can count. One of the great things about being a pastor is that you get a book fund, so you can buy pretty much any book that you want, and I do. And so I'm always reading something. 
Okay? I'm always reading something. I have a curious mind and a hunger to learn. And that's a good thing. But it can also become an obsession. Just ask Sarah. She'll tell you. Okay? Hey, Bran, you want to watch TV together tonight? I'd kind of like to read. You want to play a game together? Yeah, I've got some reading I want to get to. And you notice our son standing in front of you screaming? No, I was reading. Didn't, didn't see that. I mean, I'm sort of joking around, right? But as silly as it might sound, that's actually one of the things that threatens my relationship with God. And here's why. Because if I'm being honest with you, I probably spend more time reading, on average, than I do praying. I probably spend more time reading than I do in devotions. I probably spend more time reading than I do here in worship with fellow Christian believers. And yeah, a lot of what I read has to do with our faith, right? I mean, that's my job. That's what I read. It's, stu- it's theology. It's about scripture. But the problem is that I can very easily spend more time reading about God than actually spending time with God. And that's the kind of slavery that de Groot is talking about. That's the kind of Egypt that we all end up in from time to time. That's the kind of slavery that makes it hard for us to serve God. Because when that happens, it's hard for us to serve him because we're already serving something or someone else. And so that's where this season of Lent comes in. Now, to be honest, I actually don't know uh, how seriously people around here take Lent. You'll have to tell me after the service, okay? Um, I I know for many years I didn't actually take it all that seriously myself. Growing up in my CRC church back in Illinois, Lent was something that people at the local Catholic church did. Uh, For those of us in the Christian Reformed Church, it was kind of a joke. And I remember making those sorts of jokes, right? Because people would ask things like, what are you giving up for Lent? And my response, my stock response that I used every single year was, homework. As if I was the first person who ever thought of that joke. Um, But then I ended up going to a college and a seminary that actually took the practice of Lent in these 40 days really seriously. And I remember having it explained to me in such a way where it suddenly started to make sense. You see, like I said, uh, the 40 days of Lent are at least partially based on Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness before his temptation in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus goes out to the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, but first he spends 40 days alone, by himself, fasting. And he does that, he fasts for 40 days to prepare for that temptation. There's actually parallels between Jesus' temptation and Adam's temptation back in Genesis chapter 3 that that scripture is trying to get us to see. And where Adam failed, Jesus wasn't going to. And so he goes out to the wilderness to strip himself of everything else that might compete for loyalty with his father. That way when Satan finds him to tempt him, there's nothing else for him to rely on other than his father. And Jesus' answer to those temptations, those three temptations, actually shows us that. Because when Satan tempts Jesus to turn stones into bread, Jesus answers, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. When Satan tempts him to throw himself off the temple and tests the promises of Psalm 91, Jesus responds, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And when Satan tempts Jesus to take the easy way out to become Lord and King of creation rather than eventually having to go to the cross, Jesus instead forcefully responds, away from me, Satan. 
for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Did you catch it? The way that Jesus answers each of those temptations from Satan talks only about his father. Man does not live on bread alone, but on my father's words. I will not put my father to the test. I will worship my father alone and serve him only. After 40 days in the wilderness, there's nothing else left for Jesus to depend on. It's been stripped away. And the only thing that's left is the only thing, the only one that he truly needs. His father and his relationship with him. And it's that same thing that our practice of Lent as Christian believers still today is meant to do for us. Despite how it's been popularized, we shouldn't fast from things during these 40 days because of how we might benefit from them. That was the problem with my homework joke or that one year when I gave up pop or the one year where I decided kind of randomly to become a vegetarian for Lent. Right? All of those things might have been well and good, except for giving up bacon for a month and a half. But the problem with each of those things is that none of them were what was truly standing in the way between me and God in our relationship. Giving up those things had benefits for me, but they didn't really have benefits for my relationship with him because they weren't really the things that had become my idols. Ask yourself that question. What is it that's enslaved you? What is it that you feel like you just can't live without? What is it that you're serving more than God? What is it for you that's threatening to take his place in your life? That's what this season is about. It's about identifying those things in our lives, even the good ones, fasting from them, taking a break from them, spending some time loosening their hold on us, so that we can find our freedom in God once again. You see, God doesn't want us to be slaves like the Israelites here in Exodus 1, knuckled under, oppressed, enslaved by Pharaoh. God wants us to be set free. In fact, he's already made that freedom possible through his son, Jesus Christ, which, of course, brings us to the gospel. You know, I might as well spill the beans uh, right here at the end of, of my first sermon with you all. You'll figure it out soon enough. But the preaching method that I've sort of adopted for the last seven and a half years of ministry is one that I like to call end on the gospel. Put simply, I try to end every sermon I preach with the gospel. Because the last thing I always want ringing in people's ears as they leave a worship service where I've preached is the good news of Jesus Christ. No matter what else I say, I always want people to walk away from my preaching having heard about the grace, the forgiveness, and the mercy that we've received from our God as Christian believers. And there's a whole bunch of reasons for why I do that, why I preach this way. Uh, one is that it's the gospel news that sets the Christian faith apart from literally every other religion in the world. Another is that I personally grew up for a long time in a Christian family, in the Christian church, attending Christian schools, without fully understanding the gospel myself. So I just want to hammer it home. But maybe the biggest reason I end my sermons on the gospel is because of how frighteningly easy it is for us to forget it as sinful human beings. 
You see, it's easy to become slaves to all these other things. It's easy, like the Israelites, to find ourselves for so long in such a good place that we don't realize we've been taken captive. It's easy to eventually end up serving something, anything, other than God. That's precisely why God sent his son, Jesus Christ. He came. He lived among us. He taught us and showed us what it looks like to have a relationship with his father. Then he took our place on the cross. He paid the price that we couldn't, died the death that we deserved, and then rose to new life so that we could experience that new life in him too. And it's because of him that no matter how many times we find ourselves enslaved to whatever might capture and captivate us as broken people, we can rest assured that we are forgiven, we have experienced his mercy, and we are the people of God still. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for your faithfulness. You were faithful to the Israelites for centuries in Egypt, even when they didn't always notice. You faithfully raised up a redeemer and liberator for them to lead them out of their slavery. And Lord, you have been faithful to us as well and have faithfully raised up a savior for us too, to lead us out of the slavery of our sin and into the new life that we have in Jesus Christ. We thank you for him, and we thank you for your grace and mercy and gospel good news to us. And it's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.